How's it going? It's, it's going well. What about you? It's good. It's welcome. Welcome, Thank Daniel. You. It's, it's nice to see you again and to be talking to you here. You're Absolutely. A, you're, a, you're a veteran Instagram liver. Many of the people I've been talking to through these conversations, it's their first time, but oh my. I do it from time to time. Well, yeah, I mean, there's not really all that much to it. I mean, I am honored to be grouped in. I'm honored that you asked me and to be grouped in with some some very illustrious guests you've had on here. You know, whether they is what I'm going for. Yeah, I mean, whether they're IG live virgins or not, you know, they're they're really a nice group of of some lovely people, and I've been enjoying watching when I get a chance. Yeah, I've been noticing you tuning in. I'm uh, I'm happy to see you pop up there. Yeah, I'm usually making dinner. Nice. <laughs> it goes well. So I'm not always watching, but I'm listening. Yeah, it's. I guess it makes me feel more like a, a part of people's homes to just kind of pop into people's lives while they're making dinner and stuff like that and uh, fill their minds with some stimulation. Yeah, you're ba- back in, you're sort of back in lovely California. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just, it's how I can I can be everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Oh, and speaking of everywhere, uh, you know how you design those blotter that blotter art for me? Um, yeah, one is on its way to the UK. Nice. So, so that's kind of nice. So that'll be like the first intercontinental TAM integration blotter that goes out. That's great. Yeah. So, yeah, why don't you tell people a little bit about what you do and what TAM integration is and things like that. What I do is like, uh, well, I'm, I'm a mindfulness-based transformational coach, and I have sort of found myself working mostly with, mostly in the capacity of psychedelic preparation integration coaching. And I probably because I started a series of integration circles in the Bay Area and named it TAM Integration, TAM, Mount TAM, you know this, you grew up on it, um, but you, you probably your listeners are familiar with the idea of like the sacred mountain, the holy mountain, the mountain as like sort of the shamanic world axis, the bridge between the lower, the middle, and the upper worlds. And um, sense of place is important to me. Being grounded and oriented is important to me. And Mount Tamalpais is our local mountain. And so being that you know, we're talking to people who are having these sorts of journeys and these sorts of kind of expanded states of awareness. I wanted them to kind of remember that they have a place, right? That they belong where they stand, right? So even those of you who happen to be listening to us right now, I just want you to maybe consider for a moment that you belong right where you are right now and that right where right where we all are is, is, is sacred and holy ground. And so I named the thing Time Integration, like in honor of you know, the sacred place that we inhabit 
um, on the land and, and, and by extension, the sacred place that we inhabit in our hearts and our minds. Hmm. I love it. I love it, especially because a lot of my formative psychedelic experiences took place on Mount Tam and mm-hmm. while hiking from the base to the top of the mountain. And perhaps there's some kind of symbolism uh, behind not only ascending in my consciousness, but also literally ascending up this mountain as I do so. Right. Well, do you want to share with us like one of your, see, this is what I do. I ask questions. Um, (laughs) Okay. Do you want to tell us about one of the more profound times that that happened? With, with Mount Tam? Well, I mean, I mean, the first time I ever took mushrooms, I went out hiking in my, you know, near um, the retreat center near where my, my family lives, where I grew up, which is on Mount Tam. And, um, I guess I spent the first part of that experience at home doing the kind of more maps protocol kind of thing with the sleep mask and music and stuff like that. But then mm-hmm. after a certain point felt safe enough to explore and to go into nature. And I remember, I mean, I had, I had walked in the forest my whole life. So I had been there so many times, but it allowed me to see things from a really fresh perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, I saw the nature being this sort of orgiastic, kind of display of life like there was something actually quite sexual about it and seeing how you know, life and nature in the forest was in this process of constant death and rebirth and you know mm-hmm. re- procreation and and i was a part of that i was breathing and exhaling and the trees were taking life for me and i was getting life from them and yeah it was a very profound experience to actually tangibly feel interconnected with the forest and with nature and uh yeah it was it was beautiful um did you how that how's that influenced your painting that experience i mean i went from a uh you know a a death metal hesher uh to a third eye evangelist almost overnight Mm. i think there i mean there was a bit of a gradation there but it was a, a pretty radical reorientation of my identity in terms of, you know, feeling like this, uh, this t- sort of uh, wounded misanthrope who uh, was mm-hmm. very shy and kind of malignant and listened to extreme and dark and violent music to somebody that was like wearing, you know, white clothes with like rainbow scarves and <laughs> you know, li- listening to random rap and stuff, and like right. going to kirtans. So, like, it, yeah, it had a pretty, it had a pretty big effect on changing my personality and my behavior. I'd say, and then that, of course, influenced my art. From uh, instead of making these like paintings of demons and ghouls and dark, morbid things, into trying to make rainbow-colored, fractal, psychedelic vision paintings, right. Right, right on. Speaking of Kirtan, I see that um, someone named Hanuman just popped in. Hi, Hanuman. Welcome welcome to the podcast. Shout out to Hanuman. (laughs) Shout out to Hanuman. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm I'm curious how... I I think that what you do is really unique for the times that we're in. Like, Mm -hmm. when else in history have you been able to... make a living doing psychedelic integration and preparation work with people. And that goes to show that now is a a time. It's kind of like a a climax where people are, are using psychedelics in a really 
uh, yeah, I mean, it's more popular now in, in some ways right. than it's ever been ever. There's a quote that's very, very influential for me. Uh, it's by this great saint and sage, um, uh, Mr. Rogers. And <laughs> <laughs> he once said, we have to have more of this community expression of care. And, you know, through my psychedelic experiences, like I found that to be true. In fact, I discovered that in on LSD before I heard the quote. And the quote was mm. just like, right. Yes. Mr. Rogers gets it. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like that was one of the things that, that you know, that the expressions like you're saying, like wearing white and going to Kirtan and having rainbow scarves is a representation of an inner awareness of probably a deeper love, right? Yeah. That we, that we care, that we care about each other. And can you repeat the, Oh, someone, can you repeat the quote? I spaced out. Of course I'm ADD too. I, uh, if I wasn't the one talking, I would only be catching half of this as well. We've got to have more of this community expression of care. And I believe he said it in front of the Senate, you know, the Senate wanted to defund public television and they you know the public television was like we got to call in fred rogers and he got up in front of them and just laid it down and they were like all right there you, you got your million dollars <laughs> like all of these like really tough you know it's like I, I i think that perhaps the senate committee whatever it was was not maybe full of as many sociopaths as it is today you know, they were probably a little bit more, a little less reptilian back then, I would like to believe. Um, but he got the money and he said, we've got to have more of this community expression of care. And so I believe that um, LSD showed me that that was true. And so psychedelic integration circles are an expression of that. Like, you know, to have people, because I do the one-on-one coaching, but then I also do... Um, like online group classes, you know, we have uh, a meditation intensive coming up um, and we do these donation based integration circles where people can just share and give and receive feedback. Are you doing this virtually now? Yes. Yeah. We do them on zoom every Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night, which is probably your Thursday morning. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, while this stuff is all happening, right? And it's like the therapists are moving in and the venture capitalists are moving in and even, you know, the church, you know, people want to start churches and get in on the action. And so you have all these sort of people who are trying to tell everybody how to do it. And at the end of the day, you know, the we, the people, sorry, um, you know, the people have to take care of each other. Like if this thing's going to thrive, and and it's going to go the direction that like I want to see it going. It's like we need to show up for each other and like be there, you know, like mm-hmm. for real, for real, on like a regular basis. Because we live extreme lifestyles. We're doing weird shit and we're living in an extreme way, and we got to be there for each other. And so like that's, you know, that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that really has struck me when I've talked to more veteran psychonauts, people that were exploring psychedelics say like in the 90s you know or even Mm -hmm. i mean people i've talked to from back in the 60s and stuff like that but people that 
ordered the components to make DMT through the internet or th- through some kind of catalog and mm-hmm. created it themselves. And it was just a lot more kind of like, I think people were, were rolling the the roulette wheel a little bit more extremely mm-hmm. back then. And I, when I started getting into psychedelics, I had enough guidance to know about things like Erwid and to have enough sense to not take something from somebody I didn't know or to be able to test things before I took them. There was mm-hmm. already a lot of harm reduction in place that made my experiences a lot safer and a lot more positive. And mm-hmm. that's only because of a lot of people having a lot of bad experiences and through a kind of collective uh, organization of information that now exists. And I think that that's really important. I don't really believe that there should be some kind of dogma or sort of religion around psychedelics. And when people try to say that there is one way that you need to do it, that that tends to um, irritate me a little bit. But I do Mm -hmm. think that there needs to be elders. And you're kind of taking this role as one of the elders in the community that can can guide people um, through it a bit more safely and just... Mm -hmm you know, simple things that people can be aware of that can make their experiences more positive and less harmful. Right. You're reminding me like there was an Arrowhead when I first started getting high, like there wasn't the internet. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and so we were sort of what you would learn. I'm thinking of how I learned it. It was probably like books by like Time Magazine about the 60s you know, or about Woodstock. And it was just be like a photo color, photo journalism essay. And it'd be like, and then people took LSD and they took all their clothes off and danced to the music. And I'd be like, okay, that sounds <laughs> awesome. That sounds great. <laughs> but um, also um, it's attracting, you know, there's the people who want it. And then perhaps there's the people who need it. You know, the people who are going to get, I mean, we, we, we all sort of, like, I, I sort of needed it in, in some way, but there are more cautious types, people that don't necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, aren't, aren't willing to just take however much is around and just say, well, I'll see you tomorrow. We'll let the chips fall where they may. Um, I'm fascinated by the phenomenon these days of knowing your dosage. Like for, I feel like that's a relatively new phenomenon where, you know, when I was a kid, it was just, you, you got whatever you could get and then you just split it between whoever was there hmm. and, and you didn't really know. I mean, fortunately though, you know, talking about harm reduction is that when I was a kid, there was no fentanyl, you know, back in the day. And there was also really not Enbo maze. Right, which can be which can be lovely in the right dosage, but can be fatal if you take too much. What's and an emblema? Like two um, CB, two CB, two CI. Those. I've never heard that word before. Why do they call them emblemas? Oh, N bomb, N N B O. Oh, N N N bombs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So it was like that stuff, like the dose that leads to overdose or or toxicity with those substances is. It's not that much. Yeah. And it didn't proliferate until the DEA really cracked down on the acid cooks. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it's like you would just get out. It was just, it was inconceivable to us that it would be anything other. You know, it was either LSD or it was bunk. 
And that was, that was the two choices. The fact that it might be like fentanyl and some sort of odd research chemical from China, like never, never occurred to anybody. Right. Yeah. And I have a lot of friends who have had bad experiences by being given something that they didn't, you know, that, that was some kind of research chemical and they were expecting it to be something else. And it had a, you know, a strong Mm -hmm. experience, whether it was like DOM or it was NBOM or something like that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I think like this, this greater movement towards harm reduction. And um, I think it's important, you know, I'm not, I'm obviously not an advocate of, um, of abstinence. And I believe that if like people are going to experiment with substances and that it's necessary, therefore to teach people how to do it safely Mm -hmm. so that they don't hurt themselves. Right. And so, you know, once we get substance handled, you know, it's like, okay, this is, we know that what you're doing is what you, you, you you know what it is and you know how much you're going to take. And maybe you even have a nice space to do it in, you know, you're going to have a nice, nice room with good music and eye mass or nature. Uh, The next thing that I think is really important is mindset. You know, when we start talking about like how, how do you organize your mind to have the best possible trip and to have a journey that's going to produce um, insight and information that you can use to grow as a person. And, you know, I sort of feel like there, there are ways to maximize that. And the thing is about it is that that requires diligence and practice, right? There's a lot of the folks who are reading like Michael Pollan's book kind of want a silver bullet, you know, and those of us Mm -hmm. who maybe started as recreational users, just, you know, just was like, okay, you know, it's like, I'll turn my phone off or, you know, I don't have anywhere to be tomorrow. Like I'm good to go. Um, But, you know, the idea of working with the mind um, to have a more insightful time, I think is, is, is crucial. It can be super clutch. I want to talk about that for a second. I mean, I think that our expectations of what the experience is going to be really dramatically influence the experience that we have. Mm-hmm. And if you have an expectation that this is going to be a transcendental, life-altering, positive experience, you're going to be much like more likely to have that. If you treat it as something sacred, you're going to, mm-hmm. you know, attract a more sacred experience. But I find that those are two different things. Yes, those are two different things. Okay, that's true. Yeah, but an expectation um, and a mindset are two different things. I think that our expectations help help create our mindsets. Right. Well, what what I mean when I hear you say when I have an expectation, because I talk to people who have an expectation that they're going to have a transcendental experience or a breakthrough. Right. Uh, I, was, I want to have a breakthrough and then I didn't have a breakthrough. And damn uh-huh. it, no, you know, and it's like, so they there's this expectation of I think my experience should be one way. Um, and then if it's not exactly the way I expect it to be, then that's a problem as opposed to having a mindset where you prepare like, like the way the Iowa, the people who do a lot of ayahuasca do dietas, right? You mm-hmm. do a dieta and you pray and you fast and, you know, you journal and, and build altars. I mean, that's different than an expectation. That's like setting right. yourself up for, to have a spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's like a, it's an, an orientation towards your association with, with the actual act of taking it, you know? So, yeah. I mean, I'm just using the word expectation because I don't, I can't really think of a better word right now, but do you know what I mean though? 
I, I do. I, I do know what you mean. I just have that AA training in me where they say expectations <laughs> lead to resentments. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I could see how that would be a problem, you know? And I mean, I've had ayahuasca ceremonies, for example, where I, I felt like nothing really happened mm. where, and that's, that's a fascinating thing about ayahuasca is sometimes you take very little and you have a really intense experience. And sometimes you take a lot and nothing really happens, but I just trust that those experiences where I've sat in ceremony almost completely unaltered is that was the experience that I needed. I needed to just sit with being in a, in a dark room for many hours and to kind of be with the, the mundanity of that or the boredom of that and to, mm -hmm. to kind of like come to terms with reality in that way and also hold space for other people. Um, right. But, but yeah, I mean, in those cases, having an expectation of having a, a stronger experience and not it, it did create a little bit of uh, like dissatisfaction, I guess you could say. Right. Well, I mean, that's life. Mm -hmm. There's no, no, shortage of life. there's no shortage of dissatisfaction in life. <laughs> and, you know, it is always fascinating to me how willing people are to sit, well, because there's stuff happening, right? There's, there's content to process sitting in the dark um, on plant medicine versus sitting on the dark, not in plant medicine for several hours. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like if, if we could get more people to just sit in the dark, you know, with a glass of water and, a, and an orange, you know, for six hours and be like, that's your thing. I mean, transformation would occur. I, I think so too. I think that the way in which ayahuasca ceremonies are conducted with sitting in the dark for long periods of time by yourself and having the music that tends to accompany that, if you did that without even ingesting any medicine, that mm -hmm. would be a powerful experience by itself. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking at um, pictures of the Huni Kun. And, the, and the Huni Kunin? Yeah, and they're they're Malokas, mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, it just really looks like, regardless of anything else, those guys know how to put on a show. Yeah, I've never done ceremony with them, but I've been invited to. I'd like to someday. It seems mm -hmm. very very different than doing it with the Shipibo because when I've done, when I've worked with medicine with the Shipibo, you basically drink the medicine, and then you're just alone in the dark, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And they do the ikros, but it's not a form of entertainment. It's actually a way to treat specific ailments that people have. Right. And they sing. There's sometimes two, three people singing different songs simultaneously. And it's actually a very disharmonic kind of experience. Mm -hmm. But the, the hunakuin, they do it during the day. People dance. They sing. They have these beautiful feather headdresses. It's supposed to be a lot more kind of life-affirming, whereas the shipiba way is a lot more deathy, you know? Right. And it, I feel like the Shipibo way of drinking ayahuasca does prime you to have more near death type experiences as a result of its, uh, of the setting. Right. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. I, I've, so, I've only sat with like, you know, American hippie shamans, mm -hmm. you know, with that yeah, and, I and have not, to. not very, and not very often. And, you know, it was basically, um, you know, it was a, like an iPod sort of musical situation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we have to do the best with what we got. And mm -hmm. if you can't go to Brazil to, uh, 
sit with the, the Hunakuin or Peru to be with the Shipibo, then sometimes having a comfortable bed, some candles, some incense, and your iPod, that's good enough. Right. Right. I mean, I, I tend to... Personally, I don't go too far down like the ayahuasca rabbit hole. You know, there seems to be... You know, I want to be a good neighbor. You know, and I know that there are people who are really kind of dedicated to that path, and I just sort of feel like I'm not, and if I was going to be, I would be already. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an American, you know, hippie kid, and I sort of have grown up on, you know, psilocybin and LSD, and it works. Those work. And, you know, they're not endangered. And there's not a lot of cultural appropriation going on, you know, it's like just kind of, you know, as far as like buy local sort of thing, you know, there's something, you know, there's like a low carbon footprint and like a low cultural appropriation footprint um, for me in that way. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And also LSD, although it originated in Switzerland, there's something quite American about it. Also seeing Mm -hmm. as America was the place that, adopted its use the most dramatically even though now it's spread to every part of the world right well i mean i i could you know i can trace my lineage to like jerry the the grateful dead like it's a grateful dead lineage which is like you know uniquely it's like a unique american wisdom tradition true absolutely yeah and yeah i guess that in a way the grateful dead they're kind of the medicine people of that tribe mm-hmm. yeah i mean there were times like i've learned a lot from like the old heads you know who were just sort of like you know they would just you'd be in a weird place and they would just like wink and cough you know and it would have <laughs> the same effect as like an icarus you know they would just be like you know it's like all right It'd be like all right man you know or like you know they just like throw a lyric at you like one grateful dead lyric at you and it would just sort of like bust through like all of your all of the whole trip you know wow. into like a space of light and yeah wow and so that there are people there that know what they're doing that's cool they say i'm a little I'm a little bummed out that I never will really have a chance to experience that. That was like an older generational thing. That's just not quite the same now. It's like, well, yeah, well, nothing's ever the same. <laughs> um, yeah. What, what did that guy on the internet say? Consequences will never be the same on that viral yeah. video. Yeah, never consequ- saw that, but- yeah. There's some, some girl that was getting cyber bullied and her dad came on on the camera and yelled in the camera that he was going to call the cyber police. And he's going to track them all down and consequences would never be the same. And it's <laughs> absurd and preposterous. You know, there's nothing this guy can do. Um, but, you know, that, that quote has stuck with me. Mm. So I'm curious to hear more about also your, um, your sitting for Psychonauts class. Oh, yeah. It just so happens. I mean, it feels weird to, like, sell stuff while, you know, the, while people are fighting for justice in the streets. But I'll do it anyway. Well, you don't have to necessarily sell it. I'm just curious about what it is. Well, I've got more spaces. I've got like three more seats. uh, And it starts Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific time. So what it is, it's it's a collection of meditation practices that I've been working with, you know, for the past 20 years that I have sort of found are the best for grounding 
orienting, encountering the shadow and integrating and stepping into joy and love. Um, and so we go through those topics and we look at meditation practices through uh, a variety of, of traditions, you know, from, you know, a couple of different Buddhist schools, you know, Thera- Theravada and, you know, Vajrayana and things like that, as well as um, Tantric Hindu practices and Ayurvedic practices, a little bit of um, a tiny, just like a little bit of chaos magic sprinkled in for good measure. And it's a really, it's a really nice group. And so it's designed as a self-care. So it's designed as a self-care program, right? It's like, these are practices that you would do to prepare yourself to, to go on a journey at, at a higher level and to get more out of it. And what I have found is that a lot of people who show up are people who already guide or hold space for others or who are sort of wanting to. And it seems to work for them too. So while it's not called a training, because that would take, it's not a training, because a training would take months, it's, it's an intensive and I really do my level best to lay practices at people's feet that if they do them, they will bear fruit, right? Like that's the really cool thing about like practices is that um, it's, a, it's another obscure quote. I think it's um, Go, you know, the game, the game Go, um, or maybe it was Connect Four or something. Some board game would say a minute to learn, a lifetime to master. And so a lot of these practices are like really, really simple. Uh, but if you do them, they get really, really profound. Um, kind of reminds me of, have you seen Grant Morrison's talk on ultraculture about sigil making? No, definitely check that out. Uh, it's great. It's a great talk. It's, it's super fun. Send me all the magical things. <laughs> okay. And, you know, he says these things actually work. You know, wouldn't you know, he's like, you, you know, you guys they all... You read about it or you talk about it. You know, some people you complain, you think it's stupid, but like do it and see what happens. And oh, can I tell a Buddha story? Do we have time? Please. Yeah. Um, we have time. There's the story of the Buddha of the white parasol. And this is the kind of, these are the kind of gems you'll get if you sign up for sitting for psychonauts meditation intensive. Um, so back in the day, you couldn't just get on Zoom and hang out with a teacher or just like hop in your car and go to like Esalen and spend a weekend with a teacher. Um, you know, they were few and far between like these enlightened Buddha, you know, these lamas, these high Rinpoches. And so if you were, if you would hear, you know, this is like Tibet or Nepal, you know, you would hear that a guy was coming and he was like three days by ox cart. Like you would go because a guy, like that was your chance. Like he would maybe be back in a decade. And so, like, everybody was going to go see this Rinpoche and get this empowerment. And there was, and the, the hero of our story went with everybody, you know, went by ox cart, and he wasn't smart. The hero of our story was not blessed with a strong intellect, um, you know, not very good retention uh, and not very good comprehension. And the, so, but he goes and there's this whole crowd of people with the master and he gives the instructions. And afterwards, you know, our hero manages to get up to him to ask him a question. It was like, I don't understand. And, and, you know, 
the the master says which part he was like well pretty much all of it like i just i don't get it and he goes okay well i have a very special practice for you he's like what i want you to do is i want you to visualize a white parasol spinning above your head and just like all day long all you're doing is like you're visualizing white parasol white parasol which is one of the eight auspicious symbols right of, of the buddha so visualize this auspicious symbol of the Buddha spiraling, twirling above your head. And so our hero, while he wasn't big on brains, he was huge on devotion and discipline. So he just did the practice, like all the time. And he did it so much that he attained a certain level of enlightenment. And people could see the white parasol floating above his head. Like people, if you were like in the right light at dusk or something, you would see the white parasol. And then sometimes it even seemed like he would float off the ground, almost on like these white puffs of wind. And he, oh, and he had the ability to heal people. Right. Wow. So like just from doing this practice that the teacher made up just to shut the guy up. And so so he's just so now our our hero, our master of the white parasol, as he's been been called in whatever it's much more eloquent in in Tibetan. Um, you know, is going around healing people, and meanwhile, the, our teacher has gotten has fallen ill. He's developed all of these boils and polyps in his throat, and it's hard for him to swallow, and it's hard for him to talk, and. It's very, very painful. And, and one of his attendants says, you know, I um, heard about this guy, the master of the white parasol, and we should go see him. He's going to be three days by ox cart. It was like 15 years later. You know, he's going to be like, you know, three days by ox cart. We should, we should go. And, and, and they agree and they go. And so the teacher shows up and the master of the white parasol sees his teacher. The, the, the teacher forgot all about him. He didn't know who it was, and but the master of the white parasol didn't forget because it's his beloved guru. And he runs up to him and falls at his feet. It was like, oh, master, I did my practice just like you said, and I've been just so blessed, and I'm so honored that you're here, and thank you, thank you, falls at his feet. And the teacher realizes what had happened, and is his mind is blown, and he starts to laugh. And as he laughs, the boils in his throat break, and he, he, all the pus comes out and he's healed. Wow. And he gets, he brings him up and he was like, Hey, 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 you know, get up. You don't have to bow to me. He's like, I got to let you in on a secret. Like, I was just messing with you. Like, that's not even a real practice. And the master of the white parasol, like, his face gets all ashen. And he's like, Oh, he's like, What? He's like, Oh, no. And he, his shoulders slump forward and the parasol disappears from view and his feet sink back onto the earth as he's walking away all dejected. And the teacher's like, realized what he's done. He was like, wait, 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 no, come back. It was a test. It really is a real practice. You passed, you passed. And the parasol pops back up. And hmm. He goes on to continue to be the master of the white parasol. And so I'm not suggesting, well, I'm not suggesting anything other than practice works in unusual ways. Mm-hmm. And so it's really nice to have things to fall back on when we're super high. You know, is what it comes down to. The Navy SEALs have a saying that says, you know, when times are tough, you don't rise to the occasion. You sink to your level of practice. Mm, true. And so the more we can kind of get um, it into our bones and our tissues, you know, I'm sure you've probably talked to a somatic 
coach at some point in your podcasts or something like that. But if you can get, you know, these practices into your bones, then when weird stuff comes up, you'll have tools to deal with them. And they'll just be like in your muscle memory. Well, yeah, that story reminds me of, um, what is the name of this documentary with the, the guy that was a sort of fake guru, or he was just a normal man who decided to pretend that he was a guru. Mm. You know what I'm talking about? I remember it. I don't remember what it's called, man. If somebody knows they can drop a comment, but yeah, he was a, a normal guy. He was, I guess, I think he was American or Canadian, but he was of Indian descent and he decided to pretend that he was a guru from India in middle America and started making up these practices much like that, that people were doing and it changed their lives uh-huh. just because they believed that he had the power to help them and that these practices actually would work. They, they started genuinely having spiritual insight. Well, I mean, the thing is, is like, if you think about what their lifestyle was maybe like before, you know, it was just hamburgers and television, you know, like, almost any amount of sitting and chanting something weird and breathing in a funny way is going to produce better results than McDonald's and television. True. Like it would be hard to give someone a practice that would do worse. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. And, uh, and how much of that does have to do with just your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's also, you know, if you can enkindle somebody's devotion, the devotion will take them a long way, I think, is, is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. You know, better to, better to have devotion and some kind of janky-ass, like, sadhana to do than, like, no devotion and, like, a perfectly planned out yoga practice. Mm. Cool. Yeah, I love that. I want to I change gears a little bit because you're you're on the US, it does feel weird to be doing these podcasts without even addressing or discussing the circumstances um, right now in the US. And I'm just curious what your experience is being there right now. Being, I mean, is there anything happening in San Rafael, like protests or anything like that? I mean, I think a couple of moms marched around to high school yesterday, but Marin doesn't traditionally go very hard no, when it comes it to stuff like that. You know, it's like Oakland, you know, things were happening in the SF. I mean, I'm horrified. I mean, I'm absolutely horrified at the war crimes that are being committed against American citizens by, by the police. And, and I believe they're sending military out. Yes. Um, I, um, I would prefer it if the military showed some conscience and just stood down, you know, there was, um, I believe the New York city, Bus drivers unions um, refuse to transport protesters. Right in New York, they were arresting a bunch of people and then loading them on the buses and then telling the bus drivers, "You have to drive us here." And the and the bus drivers were getting off the bus. They were like, "We don't work for you." It's like we're not da- we're not down. We support. We're with the people. We're 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 bus drivers union. Like and so they kind of understood where their their bread was buttered. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the ruling class's bread is buttered, you know, on the side of a unaccountable police force and, and, a, and a systemically racist um, government justice system. And it's, 
absolutely heartbreaking. You know, it, it's it's absolutely heartbreaking and also very inspiring that people will show up to make a difference. You know, that people, you know, under threat of, of violence um, are continuing to show up to make a difference. And, and I'm very, very inspired by that. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would much prefer, and then they killed somebody last night again. You know, they, they saw a cop shot a, a guy who owns a barbecue restaurant, you know, for just kind of being somewhere loud and scary. You know, they just open fire and this guy dies and who knows how many people are going to die tonight. You know, people are going to die tonight, you know, because they are tired of being murdered by police that are shown no accountability. Yeah. Something that concerns me is that I feel, I mean, I think that most of the violence is being incited by the police. And from what I've seen through social media videos of the protests, the protests are peaceful up until the police start sending tear gas into the, into the crowds and uh, beating people up and inciting violence. And then people become uncentered and unglued and they start to retaliate. And then it escalates into this mm-hmm. big dramatic conflict that then the media turns around and says people are violently protesting, which isn't actually true. You know, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And I'm a little right. worried about um, government I mean, there using is, that. There are some, there are, I mean, it's my sense there are some straight up riots and looting. And yeah. I'm not even, I'm not, I'm not trying to judge any, I'm not trying to judge people, you know, for trying to have their voices heard, you know, and for expressing, you know, decades and generations of frustration. Like it's, it's not my intention. Uh, I would, I would like the system to recognize that it's fucked up and do something about it. And the people in power are, are not They're They're doubling down and they're doubling down, you know, with violence against humans, which is different than violence against target, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because let's face it in, in a just society target would also be pissed off that people are getting murdered in the streets by police. Like why isn't target saying something, you know, it's like, where are they? They don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, where's the community care? That's what it comes back to for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it's like our definitions of ourselves determine our actions. So if you have a definition of self that includes people of all kinds, you know, whether they're a police officer or not, whether they're black or white or whatever, then you're going to be oriented to care, care for yourself. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's this, it's an identity thing where the the police seem to really see themselves as being separate from, from the people and mm-hmm. to look at the people as being the other that they need to be dominant over. And they have their own agendas that are being threatened by them. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a, yeah, I think it really comes down to our orientation of what we, what we look at as ourselves, right. And who we see as our community. Yeah. Um, And it's hard when, you know, it's interesting watching these guys in all this riot gear. Somebody was showing me pictures of protests 20 years ago, I think for some 
maybe like WTO or, you know, some sort of trade agreement or R, you know, RNC protests in, in Philly. And all of the cops were just wearing blue shirts. Like there was no riot gear. Riot gears knew they, they passed some kind of law that allowed the military to sell military grade equipment to local police forces. And so that's why, mm-hmm. you know, there are tanks and bazookas and tear grenades and like all of this insane violent shit that these guys train in. And, you know, it's, it's a military, it's a militarized force, right? On American soil, you know, that is mm-hmm. being deployed against its own citizens. Yeah. And this has been happening for a long time too. I remember years ago seeing uh, images that were showing where military, uh, um, you, you know, arms were being purchased by police forces and all the different places in the U S that had them. And it's been growing over many years, these like mm-hmm. stockpiling the militarization of police. Um, something that concerns me is how, how the governments could use the situations and use the media to get the people to sign off on them doubling down on authoritarian measures and control. Like oh, to, yeah. you know, to, to say, okay, so people are being violent and unruly and we need to control this and to sell that story through the media, even though it's a lot more nuanced and a lot of the violent I- violence is being incited by police. Um, and for the majority of people who are just at home, like, you know, stoned on McDonald's and watching the news are going to be like, yeah, we got to do something about that. You want to take away our freedoms and enforce greater governmental control. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. do that. Right. The The president says that he wants to classify Antifa as a terrorist organization. Antifa is not an organization. Like there's no Antifa headquarters. There's no Antifa leadership. It's just like a bunch of people who don't like fascism that are scattered just around. It's just sort of, if you don't like fascism, you're Antifa. But if you classify this thing as a terrorist organization, you can basically just Guantanamo people for no reason. You know, it's like, oh, you just must be. It's like you're, it's sort of the opposite of AA, right? It's back to AA where they say, you're a member if you say you are. Whereas like Antifa is sort of like, you're a member if they say you are. Yeah. You know, it's like you do something that is kind of against the fascist authoritarianism that is proliferating and you get labeled as such and you're gone. Mm. Yeah, it's it's scary. And um, I don't want to, impose the idea that things could get this bad but if you if you look at like nazi germany like germany was a, a first world country a norm like a, a a thriving nation and then mm-hmm. there was the the rise of the nazis and it's like if it could happen there given what society was it could happen anywhere you know if people mm-hmm. are complicit to it and people are complicit to it through a lot of um, psychological tactics utilized by the media mostly to help brainwash people, you know? Um, So that that stuff is very concerning for me. I mean, obviously like the overt racial conflicts too have been going on for 
you know, a long time and it's something that needs to be dealt with. But I think that the, the governments or, or kind of the ruling class could be exploiting the situation for their own means. Oh, undoubtedly, you know, and, and you hear, you know, people parading around on MSNBC is like, Oh, this just makes it even more important that you vote, which is absurd because I mean, Biden put the laws into place that allowed this militarization to happen in the first place. You know, there's like no, neither side cares, actually gives a shit. You know, both, both the Republicans and the Democrats would like things to go back to normal so that the upper class and wealthy people can be comfortable. Like there's no, you know, there, there's no overt or obvious effort to actually address what's going on coming from either side of the aisle. Yeah. And, you know, there was this chance, I mean, not to get all Bernie bro on, on Twitter or anything, but, you know, there was a chance for like a peaceful resolution with comrade Sanders and, we saw, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party was very effective at squashing that, right? Very coordinated, you know, throughout all of the media channels and um, all of the voter fraud um, and suppression. You're aware about the voter fraud? No, tell me. So the UN has this thing that, you know, they do exit polls, right? So when you leave or entrance poll, you leave and they say, who'd you vote for? And you say, I voted for Bernie. And then they look at the polls and then they look at the ballots. And if the discrepancy is more than 4%, then that's evidence of tampering, right? So through various states around the country, tampering was like the, the discrepancy was like as high as 12 or 15% in some places and it was always in favor of Biden. Like there was never a discrepancy that was in favor of, of Bernie. And these, then they were sometimes three or four times greater than the limit that the United Nations set. So like that was a thing and we don't talk about it. Right. And so they were very good at that. And the government seems to be very good. And these are, these are, a lot of these cities are run by Democrats. Right. And this is, this should not be taken as me being pro Republican because fuck, no. fuck them all, you know, Howie Hawkins, Green Party. You know, there's never been a better time to try and get 5% vote at the Green Party. You know, they, something happens if, if the Green Party gets 5% of the vote, like they get a, a whole new status. So, like, there's never been a better time to vote for Howie Hawkins. Um, but a lot of these cities are of Democratic leadership, and they're still trotting out the cops. You know, Democrats yeah. are just, you know, maybe a little bit more, um, you know, hurt about the fact that they have to beat you into submission. Like, it's like, you know, the Democrats, it's almost like, oh, this hurts me as much as it hurts you. 
you know, which is, is, is not true because you're shooting young girls in the face with rubber bullets, you know, and, and, and wounding them, you know, scarring them for life. Yeah. So it's not like there's a solution that's going to be had at the ballot box. And anybody who suggests otherwise is, 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 has got, um, Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, we have about five minutes. So I just want to give you like a, a warning about that. Ooh, I got but, fire. Uh, I don't usually talk politics, man. Yeah, no, it's good. I, I like mean, to talk me, about Buddhist monks. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't, I don't usually talk about this stuff either, but it's like, I, I grew up in, you know, Marin County. I think that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of pride in being like a Democrat and stuff like that. And it's, there's a lot of emphasis put on, um, on things, but, um, I would say that, you know, I'm waking up more to the fact that it's, it's not really about Democrats versus Republicans. It's more about these people in a position of power, which includes both Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. And they are very threatened by anything that might subvert the, the hold and the power that they have. And that's sort of just the truth of the situation. And, um, yeah, the, the whole divide between Republican and Democrat, it's just a diversion to waking so, up to that, that so, truth and realization. It's a total diversion. I mean, we've got just like, you know, one, you know, we've got two guys with dementia that probably shit their pants on a regular basis. And one is sort of like a very shouty, loud racist. And another guy just enacts racist policies over and over and over and over and over again. Like nothing, Rave Act. Remember the Rave Act, right? Which is the reason you can't test your drugs in festivals in America was is a Joe Biden thing, mm-hmm. right? It's the reason, like, if if you if they allow drug testing at their festival, the producers of the festival could get arrested for being complicit in illegal activity, and that's mm-hmm. a Joe that's a Joe Biden invention. We're uh, love- we're getting like. We're, we're getting dangerously close to like the amount of time that we have, but it's just like, I wonder if there is ever a time in history where there wasn't a dramatic separation between those in a ruling class and those, those below it. And, you know, it could, could there be, could there be a society that is uh, built around balance and harmony between people of divergent interests um, I want to say yes, and I also just want to tell everybody who's listening that I love you. In case we get cut <laughs> off, I just want to like slide in a, like a big, big heartfelt appreciation for for your time and attention. Yeah, yeah. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we can still keep going for a little bit. I just like like what like what are things in your opinion that we can do given given the situation at hand to um, stay connected to our highest selves. Well, I think consider what is the felt sense of being connected. Like, get you know, it's like how do you organize your body in such a way that you get connected? Like, don't think that you're you know you're not going to get there by furring your brow and clenching your fists and wish that you should get there. You know, it's like what is it? What is the metaphor for connection look like to you? Are you opening? Right. So then you got to open your body. Are you delving? Right. You got to, you got to figure out how to go deep. And so like, just pay attention to the metaphors that are right for you and try to organize your body around that, organize your heart around it.
It's the mm. best thing I can come up with off the top of my head. Let people yeah. know, be in and be in service. You know, let some like like hook somebody up that that can't necessarily do anything for you. It's like hook people up and get just like programmed, like just program your default net, net mode network for compassion and care. Mm-hmm. And you'll be stoked. You know, I mean, or you know, I guarantee it, or triple your misery back. Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and there, I think that like I've felt somewhat. I don't know, like I, I feel a little bit like there's not too much I can do, but I think that, uh, and I feel like a lot of people fear, feel that sense of powerlessness, but I think that helping somebody is something that anybody can do. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's always in this circumstance, there's a lot of people who need help. And that might just mean people need to be made to smile or something like that. Like mm-hmm. that's also helping people being, being kind to people is helping. Yeah. Yeah, be be kind to people. It doesn't doesn't take much, and it's like a super fun game. Like, isn't that like a really fun like day after a psychedelic journey trip to just like you know inject like the room with sparkles? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's like, <laughs> just that kind of thing. You know, yeah, how do you absolutely. how do you make everybody's? What do you got to do to like help make everybody's wildest dreams come true? What if we were just focused on that? Let's just make everybody's wildest dreams come true. I love that. Yeah. All right, man. Well, you've uh, you've helped make my wildest dreams come true by Woo! by helping helping my podcast journey along. Thanks well, so love, much for. I love the discipline. I love that you're making it. You're actually doing it. I'm doing it, man. I've been talking about it for a long time. It's happening. Mm-hmm. All right, bro. Much love. Thanks for tuning in. And much, much love. love to everybody who's been listening as well. Jay we Hanuman. Jay Hanuman. Hare Krishna. <laughs> Jaya. <laughs> All right, man. Be well. Be well.